to the 68th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. Today, I'm very proud to be joined by Robert Krasinski. Before I even begin to introduce Robert, I wanted to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you can use the comment section to type in your questions. Go ahead and get started. Um, we'll get to as many of them as we can, though I have to warn you, I have quite a few questions for uh, Robert myself. Robert Trusinski is, uh, of course, the author of the Trusinski Letter, a newsletter that covers culture and politics from an individualist perspective, and the author of So who is John Galt anyway, a reader's guide to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. He has been a writer, lecturer, commentator for over 25 years by now. Um, he's edited and published, published The Intellectual Activist, uh, an objectivist review, served as editor uh, for Real Clear Politics, writing for The Federalist and uh, hosting a podcast uh, and an editor at Symposium. So Robert, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, pleasure to be here. So um, I'd like to first cover a bit on current events because you have written so much about uh, you know, what went wrong in Afghanistan. You um, have discussed the role of our Afghan allies uh, and there's a lot of, you know, current explanations and excuses. Um, what are those getting wrong about what's happened in Afghanistan from, from your perspective? Right. So, the, well, how long do you have? Uh, so, um, you know, as to what went wrong with, in Afghanistan, there's going to be a lot of discussion, a lot of different things we can talk about. We could talk about the training of the Afghan army where we trained them to fight with US support. And the minute US support disappeared, they were basically unable to, to continue. Um, there's all sorts of things we've done wrong, but I think the fundamental thing we done, did wrong was a cognitive failure. It was a failure to think long-term, a failure to, to find a strategy and stick to it over a very long term and find one that's sustainable over a very long term. What you had really was, I, 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 and I, this was, had a big impact on my career because I was just sort of starting to get an audience and purchase as a writer when September 11th happened. And so discussing what to do about the war on terror, what to do in Afghanistan loomed very large for me, but I found that the American public paid attention for about four years and then they tuned out and they didn't want to hear any more about it. And they didn't want to think any more about it. And so when I hear people talk about the burden of the war in Afghanistan, well, the burden wasn't high for the average, the average person. It wasn't noticeable. The only burden was a cognitive one that you had to continue paying attention. And there's a sort of an Afghan saying, um, it's attributed to various Taliban leaders that you have the watches, but we have the time. And this is the idea that, you know, we, America has all this high technology. We have, we're, we have this material superiority, but what we don't have is we don't have the patience to see something like this through. And they figured if they just wait us out, uh, eventually we would get bored and we'd go away. And that's kind of what happened uh, is that we have, uh, I think the last real attempt to focus on Afghanistan was a half-hearted one by, by President Obama about 10 years ago. He sort of 
he did the politicians thing. He couldn't commit to doing a search. He couldn't commit to doing withdrawal. He sort of did something in between. And since then, there has not been that sort of focus of let's review what our strategy is, how is it working, how do we achieve a successful result? It was just sort of temporizing and half measures, and it was always on the back burner. And eventually the result was, well, since we haven't gotten anywhere, we're tired, let's just get out. And what you see is, you know, getting just getting out is, is what the last couple of weeks have looked like. And um, I don't think it's going to be a very good ending. I don't think it's going to actually end our involvement because uh, what you have now is you have the Taliban going around saying, look, we're invincible, we're invulnerable. We struck, you know, the United States came at us with all the power of a superpower and then we won. Uh, so there's just going to be emboldened. And I think, I'll, you know, they're not going, this idea they're going to, there's a fantasy going around right now that we're going to have them as a partner to help us uh, uh, suppress Al-Qaeda because it's in their interest. In what way would it be in their interest? They just want to against us. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, after 9-11, you uh, anticipated a war that would be won on the battlefield and lost in, in Washington, D.C. Um, it, it seems like from what you've just been describing, that's that's kind of what, what happened. You, you also said in war, as in everything else, uh, one cannot choose outcomes, only actions. And on that note, in retrospect, uh, you said the man you missed the most was, was George W. Bush. Why is that? I, I might be alone in that sentiment, but uh, well, that's that's why I wanted to hear it because you know you're you've got a lot of uh, unusual, unorthodox, uh, unconventional sentiments. We're going to get to some of them, but I couldn't resist that one. Well, so the reason I miss Bush is that he made a lot of mistakes, but he was actually really trying. There was a sense with him that you know he was there at, at Ground Zero at 9/11, and he talked about the impact that had on him. And the sense that he regarded the war on terror and the threat of terrorism as a real thing, right? And not as a, not the way the politicians think about an issue. Politicians think about an issue. They think of it as, well, there's a pressure group. And what is the media going to say? And I'm going to get criticized by this person and somebody will do something on Twitter. And they think about the pressures and the, um, uh, the sort of second-handed, I can use that term for objectivists, the second-handed uh, influences on them to conform to one pressure group or another. That's how a politician thinks about it. And George W. Bush, he had that aspect to him. He was a politician, but when it came to the war on terror, he thought about things in a more real, a, a more of it as a real thing that he really had to get right. And the one thing I give him lots of credit for was what happened in Iraq, because you know in Iraq, things were going downhill. And in 2006, he sat down and said, let's rethink the entire strategy he can't, you switched to a, a, a proper counterinsurgency strategy, found David Petraeus to implement it, and really actually had an impact of an unusually successful impact of turning things around in Iraq for about a year into you know, his last year in office. Um, so there's that sense that he was actually engaged in this and thought it was important. And what I've missed about the war on terrorism after that is there hasn't been a president since then who has been engaged and actually thought it was important. They've all thought it was a distraction to the other things that they wanted to do. And like I said, you know, Obama was the politician who would, wouldn't withdraw from the, wouldn't withdraw us from the war on terrorism, but he wouldn't really commit to it either. He just sort of stayed in between of which path would get him the least criticism. Uh, and I think that's, that's what I miss about it is the idea that, you know, this is, America is so powerful that if we want to do something, we actually have the capability to do it. 
but what happens is that you know especially in foreign policy because america's also somebody said on twitter the other day something i liked which is america's a country so big you could spend your whole life taking vacations inside of it and and, and never get bored right so it's very easy for us to say let's just stay here in this big country of ours and ignore the rest of the world so in foreign policy we have a hard time maintaining any idea you know beyond the moment of a crisis there's a great story i like to tell it's from dashiell hammett the sort of hard-boiled detective fiction writer uh, one of his Sam Spade stories. Uh, Sam Spade talks about how he was hired once by a woman to find her husband had disappeared and he was hired to find out what happened to the guy. And he finds out that the guy was walking down the street one day and a, a beam from a construction site falls down and lands inches away from him. He has this near-death experience and he changes his entire life. He goes in this series of adventures, but by the time Sam Spade catches up with him, He's in a new town with exactly the same kind of job he had before, a new family of exactly the same kind, very exactly the same kind of wife he had before. And you know, he got, he's gone back exactly to his old life because you know construction material stopped falling from the sky. He stopped having the near-death experience. So he goes back into his comfortable rut. And I think that's sort of what we did as a nation you know, in the years after 9-11. Uh, skyscraper stopped blowing up. So we decided, let's move on. We're not going to pay attention to this anymore. And I'm concerned that you know we've stopped paying attention to them, but they haven't stopped paying attention to us. Um, speaking of other politicians, including the current occupant of the White House, you had said that, quote, zero responsibility should be emblazoned on Biden's tombstone uh, as the way that we remember his, his legacy. Can you elaborate well zero responsibility is something you said in response to a question last year uh mm -hmm. about you know do you feel you'd have any responsibility for the results of a of a withdrawal from afghanistan and you literally said zero responsibility and i think we're sort of seeing in the last couple of weeks what zero responsibility looks like in practice that he has been seemed kind of aloof and uh uh distant and like he's not really engaged you know, like this is an annoyance that he wants to be over with and out of the way. And I think he's he's hoping that, you know, a week from now when nothing is actively happening on our TV screens, uh, we'll all forget about it. So I think that, you know, Joe Biden is, uh, well, I think, uh, you know, he, he is somebody who could only have become a sane uh, or, or accept, a minimally acceptable alternative for president in the eyes of most people only in the sort of debased context of our current politics where his opponents were you know bernie sanders in the primaries and donald trump in the general election um i almost feel like he's like this sorry he's gonna sleepwalk his way into the presidency because everybody else did such a terrible job that he was left as the only person that you would that, that the last man who was the least offensive person uh, uh but he's you know he's he is a he is the article of Ayn Rand that I want to revisit sometime soon is the age of mediocrity, because there she was complaining about Jimmy Carter, and I think she was complaining about Reagan. I think she was unfair on Reagan. But this idea of how is it that in, in this great nation of you know 300 million people with this storied history, that these are the people who are rising to the top as our as our choices uh, for for the presidency, and how is it we don't have something more uh, people who are more serious and uh, more engaged and more competent. 
Uh, well, I had a couple of other questions on Afghanistan and also you've written uh, one of your recent letters on China, which uh, I'll recommend that our viewers uh, go and check out. Perhaps we can put a uh, link to it in our, um, in our various threads on our platforms. But having just finished uh, your book, so who is John Galt anyway? I wanna spend a little bit of time on that. Um, you were mentioning to me the origin story for this book. Uh, yes. Perhaps you'll share it with our viewers. Right, so, so, so who is John Galt anyway is a series of essays I wrote over a period of about five years or so uh, for my newsletter, for the Trzeszewski letter, uh, originally for my subscribers. I actually kind of crowdfunded this uh, effort from my subscribers, but, but the way it started out is, I started another series called An Atheist Reads the Bible, and that's just me going through the Bible, you know, book by book, chapter by chapter, coming up with some interesting, interesting things. It came from the fact that I, I had a fairly secular upbringing and I never really read the Bible. So at one point I sat down and said, yeah, I got to find out what's really in this. And it turns out there's some very interesting aspects to it, some things you might not expect, um, good and bad. Uh, but the I started going through writing this series of books of, of, of articles in the Bible, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, I've got all these subscribers who are objectivists. They didn't necessarily sign up, you know, to get churched up here to, to, to read about the Bible. I better, you know, as compensation, throw them a few articles about Atlas Shrugged. And then as I got into it, I started coming up with more and more ideas of, oh, I should write about this aspect. I should write about that that aspect. Uh, and you know, I ended up with twenty chapters. Uh, so it, it turned it into a, a, a bigger project that has made much and went a lot faster than than the Bible. I'm in the Bible with the Bible. I'm only in. Uh, uh, I just finished the book of Joshua writing about that. So you know, I'm, I'm still well into the beginning of the, the Old Testament. Um, so this went a lot faster. But it was my attempt to sort of cover also a whole range of, of issues of the literary aspects of Atlas Shrugged, the historical context of it. Um, the philosophical themes in it. Uh, one of my favorite things was writing about Ayn Rand as a philosopher of the Enlightenment, because there's been a certain rebirth of interest in the Enlightenment in the last couple of years. You had Stephen Pinker and Jonah Goldberg, some prominent people writing about the Enlightenment and looking at Ayn Rand as a philosopher of the Enlightenment, how she fits in with that tradition. Uh, and going through over all these different aspects, sort of uh, things that I've learned from 25 years of, of, or actually more than 25 years now of reading this, of reading Ayn Rand's novel, and and thinking about it, and and about how how it connects to the to the events of the world that I'm covering in my uh, in the rest of my work as a, as a commentator on politics. Well, the, let's step back then and and share with us. We've talked about the origin story of the book, but how about the origin story? With Ayn Rand, how did you originally get introduced to her ideas? Yeah, so so I was dragged into objectivism, kicking and screaming. Um, I, I I I initially started out. So I had a friend, old friend, uh, named Robert Garmong. He's he's still around as an objectivist, um, but he, he and I were friends in high school, and he encountered the Fountainhead and started reading Ayn Rand and started bringing up all these arguments to me, and I started arguing against them. Right, so I was trying to refute Ayn Rand. Um, but I, I, you know, I sort of realized that, well, there's something there. So I said, okay, I have to read this and find out what it's about so I can refute it. Right? And, and you can see how well that worked out. Um, but the interesting thing is, and this ties into a little bit to, to what I'm doing in the book, is that when I first, I picked, first, so I picked up Atlas Shrugged and I started reading that, I got about 200 pages in and I said, I put it down and I said, you know, it's very compelling writing, but I don't think it's realistic. I don't think life is like this. And then there was this period of a couple of months 
where I'd be reading the newspaper or watching the TV and think, hey, that's just like something from Atlas Shrugged, right? And it just kept happening over and over again. It's this experience I think uh, all, all fans of the novel have had at some point of seeing something in the news, something happening in real life and thinking, you know, seeing the parallels to the novel. And that made me think, well, maybe life is like this. Maybe there is, so, you know, maybe it's more realistic than, realistic than I thought. So I read through all of that. I still wasn't satisfied because at, before I encountered uh, uh, Ayn Rand, I, would, I was already interested in, my, my career goal was to be a philosopher. Uh, and so I was already very interested in philosophy. So I said, I have to go down to the deepest things. So I'm perhaps unusual in that the second book of Ayn Rand's that I read was the introduction to objectivist epistemology. And I have this very vivid, vivid memory of getting to the chapter on axiomatic concepts, where she explains you know, the, 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 the basis and validity of the axioms at the basis of her whole metaphysics. And it kind of clicked for me there. And you know, the, the rest, as they say, is history. But that, once that clicked into place, I just, it was just absorbing everything else. Um, so I sort of uh, set out to refute uh, objectivism and set out to refute Ayn Rand's philosophy and then ended up getting dragged into it uh, uh, despite that effort. Well, we're glad, we're glad that you did. But, so, but it connects to what I'm doing with the book is that I got dragged into it because I saw all the connections to the, to the, to the outside world. And that was really what sort of, sort of pulled me in. And that's one of the things I really wanted to, to get across and, and convey in the book that I, in, in, in some of the chapters of this book. So I touched on um, earlier how you are often uh, an originator of some counterintuitive or unconventional takes on uh, on things and uh, one of those was um, in one of the more provocative arguments in the book which was all an Ayn Rand hero really wants is love um, which uh, certainly stands in stark contrast with some of the caricatures uh, some of which you mentioned in the book including one by a conservative who said that Rand believed quote, the parasitic weak deserve to be trod upon by the capitalistic powerful. Um, so what did you mean by that? Uh, all an Ayn Rand hero really wants is love. So, so one of the sort of side purposes of the book is to refute a lot of the, uh, or answer a lot of the misconceptions. And the reason there are, there are so many misconceptions is people come to Ayn Rand and to her books with certain categories you know pre-constructed in their mind of you're either this or you're that you're either left or you're right you're either in favor of the rich or in favor of the poor and so therefore if you if you have a bunch of heroes who are rich businessmen then therefore you must hate the poor right you, that that sort of or you're the materialist or or a spiritualist and therefore if you uh celebrate material accomplishments and achievement therefore you're you are a total materialist in the in the sense of not believing in anything, the spiritual value of anything. So a lot of this is basically saying Ayn Rand does not accept your, your categories, that the categories you go in with as your alternatives are not necessarily valid and challenging them is a major part of the point of, of her philosophy and her novels. Uh, so all an Ayn Rand hero really wants is love is what I came up with in answer, starting out with the idea that one of the characters is that uh, the, the Ayn Rand loves the rich people and, and, and being rich is the most important thing in Ayn Rand's philosophy. Now, if for those who started with the Fountainhead, you already know something that, that what, what that's wrong with this, because the Fountainhead is basically about a bunch of starving artists, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and, and people who are going broke uh, to, uh, at several points in the novel to, to pursue their artistic vision. 
But the thing about Atlas Shrugged that I find interesting is that a lot of the main heroes in Atlas Shrugged are downwardly mobile. They give up massive fortunes, whereas a lot of the villains, I mean, at the end of the novel, uh, Jim Taggart, the main villain, is, is, is probably the wealthiest man in the world or one of the wealthiest men in the world. So a lot of the villains are, 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 are themselves corrupt. You know, they're corrupt, what we call crony capitalists in the inexact uh, language of today. Uh, but they're, they're politically connected businessmen who are very wealthy or they're politicians and, and political figures and bureaucrats who are not necessarily wealthy in and of themselves, but like the apparatchiks in the Soviet Union, they still manage to live very well. Um, Whereas a lot of the heroes are people who give up their fortune and, you know, we, Ellis Wyatt's the oil baron and we next see him swinging a lunch pail on his way to work on his, on his, uh, on this little small rig that he has in Gold's Gulch. So I was pointing out that process. But in addition to that, the thing I noticed is that making money is actually not the main focus of the lives of the main characters because they take that for granted. They know how to make money. Right. Being able to make money, being able to produce, being able to create a successful enterprise is not what's at stake for them in the novel. What's at stake for them is primarily a set of relationships of love, you know, relationships of love for their work and also of love for each other. So, for example, the whole first part of Atlas Shrugged, the, the, the main first main section of Atlas Shrugged is really about, I, I think of it as being about the loneliness of the producers. Mm -hmm. And you have Hank Reardon and Daggy Taggart you know, working hard to keep the world, keep the economy afloat and keep the world moving and facing hostility or indifference from everybody around them, including from their own family members and having this tremendous sense that there's a scene early on. It's a scene where um, uh, Dagny is, is seeing the newspaper reports of Francisco D'Anconio, which hits her pretty hard, you know, because of their history. And she sort of, uh, the, the, the music of Halley's fourth concerto, which is about uh, this you know, struggle against pain and 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 um, and despair is playing, and says it's her song and her cry. And so there's a tremendous sense of her being being lonely and of of not of having a sense of being unrewarded and unrecognized in this work that she's doing. And then of course you, you can see how that drives the whole plot of the second of the first part because you have you know uh, the, these two lonely producers who basically find each other uh, in the relationship between between Hank, between uh, Dagny and Hank Reardon. And so and you can see that, especially, I think, in the scene at the end of the, the first run of the Zong Galt line, where all the Colorado producers are there and they have, they're all greeting each other. And it's almost like she's found this family that she never knew that she had. Uh, so there's this, this sense that, you know, what an Ayn Rand hero really wants is the spiritual value that's behind the material values that he produces. And that includes, you know, the love, his love of his work and also the love of the other people who share his values. And so it's very much the opposite of, if you actually look at the structure of the, of the plot in the novel, it's very much the opposite of the caricature people have in, in their heads. Yeah, and I thought that observation took on added poignancy when you think of uh, perhaps Ayn Rand's own loneliness, you know, and, and her desire for a community for other minds that she could she could connect with. Another uh, another counterintuitive take. You remarked on quote how much of Atlas Shrugged was a tribute to the American common man. 
Do you want to elaborate on that? This is something that I find fascinating, actually, because again, one of the caricatures here is Ayn Rand hated the average person, the common man. I think it's actually, there's a fascinating evolution that happens as she comes from Russia to the United States. Because early, her very earliest thing, she had a, a unpublished notes for a short, for a story called The Little Street. And it's very much sort of, uh, it's very much bit more, it's sort of like there are themes that are in the fountainhead later, but it's much more angry and bitter. And there's much more of the sense of the, the common man being venal and corrupt and hating the extraordinary person. Whereas by the time you get to the fountainhead, you know, you have characters thrown in, like there's Mike the welder, who are thrown in specifically to create a bond between the extraordinary man and the common man. And the idea of sort of this contempt for the common man as being, um, being corrupt and vicious, that's embodied in Hank Reardon, or sorry, not Hank, that's embodied in Gail Widened, uh, mm -hmm. who is portrayed as being mistaken, and that, that's part of the, where he goes wrong. So there's this evolution in her view of the common man. And I, I think it comes partly from her being from a Russian context because there's this whole Russian tradition coming up you know, in the decades before, before she was born and before she came to the US of you know, the Russia had, the, the intellectuals in Russia generally had the idea of wanting something better, a more liberal system or some kind of reformed system of something other than the, uh, the tyranny of the czars. But they looked, but they oftentimes, you know, when they would stick their necks out, they would find that there was no support coming to them from the common man in the Russian street who seemed to like having a strong man. And, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Um, and so there was a tremendous bitterness in the Russian intelligentsia towards the common man. But you also saw that uh, one of the, I know authors that she knew, I know she read is Ortega y Gasset, uh, a Spanish writer who wrote about, I think it's called The Revolt of the Masses. And, and, which the sub theme of part of it is partly that the masses are revolting uh, uh, in, in the other sense of the word. Uh, so there was this sense of the, there's this very European sense of the intellectuals trying to strive for something better and the common man being indifferent and this tremendous bitterness, which I think she absorbed from the Russian context and she got from some of the European intellectuals that she read, but then she comes to America, right? And she just counters the American common man and you see this evolution where by the time you go to Atlas Shrugged, you know, the, the one person that, that the one group of people that, that Dagny Taggart can count on getting along with, or that Hank Reardon can count on getting along with, um, uh, uh, other than other producers like herself, are the guys on, you know, the, the track workers, you know, the, the, the blue collar workers out there, uh, the, the American common man. Or as I put, I put out in my book, there's, you know, one of the, I think people tend to underestimate the role of Eddie Willers, that how crucial he is to the plot and how much of the plot he's in. You know, and I point out, if you if you think of this as a movie, you know, if you could actually film all of Atlas Shrugged as a movie, Eddie Willers would have this enormous amount of screen time because he spends all this time talking to this mysterious worker. Now, spoiler alert, I like to not, you know, for people who are new, but I think this audience is not going to be that new. The worker turns out to be John Galt. So the greatest hero and your sort of everyman character, Eddie Willers, are close friends who spend hours and hours talking with one another. And that's a central thread that goes through and, and serves all sorts of purposes uh, in, in the plot of the novel. So it shows that she went through this, this evolution on her view of the common man. And I think it was her encounter with the American common man who sort of embodied these enlightenment ideals and the enlightenment individualism that I think changed her outlook on that. Well, and speaking of a uh, potential 
future adaptation of Atlas Shrugged into a film, you offered up uh, what was a very intriguing idea, I thought, which was to cast actors who bore resemblance to current political figures um, who matched the characters in some significant respect. So I think you had Paul Krugman for Wesley Mouch, Bernie Sanders for uh, Eugene Lawson. And um, you had a special recommendation for the role of the president, that the head of state, and that no, was- He's not the president, he's the head of the, the head state. Of state. I know, I know you have that in here, um, which I thought was really interesting and, uh, and I will quote it. Um, there's the relentless glad handing. Uh, there's the lowbrow colloquialisms. There's the soul of the horse trading uh, machine politician. But above all else, there is one thing, his weakness for poorly thought through brainstorms that seem um, really shrewd, but end in disaster. And you said that was the classic uh, Joe Biden. So. My question is, that seems particularly prescient, uh, particularly given what's happened in the last few weeks, but has your role, uh, has your experience actually watching Joe Biden in the role of head of state, has it changed or added to your casting recommendation? Yeah, I'm going to have to start referring to him as the head of the state from now on. Because, <laughs> you know, Ayn Rand does something interesting there that when she has, you know, it's the legislature and not Congress, it's the head right. of the state and not the president. So she wants to sort of subtly let us know you're not in Kansas anymore, that mm -hmm. this American system in the novel is not quite what it is in our, you know, the one that we're familiar with. But um, I think Joe Biden has, yeah, he's lived down. Now, I won't call it prescient, though, because I mean, this is a guy who's been in politics since, um, I don't know if it, since I, I was like three years old when he was first elected to office. So he's been in politics my entire life. And at the time I wrote that, I was observing him as I think it's the, he was just finishing up eight years as vice president. So this was retrospective, identifying all those qualities of his character. And boy, does that is that borne out by, by what he's doing now. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a, a line that's written about Wesley Mouch, but it applies to, to, to Biden and to Mr. Thompson as well which is something he's the zero point at the meeting of opposing forces and he aspired to be nothing else. And that's sort of, you know, that's I said, Joe Biden sort of sleepwalked into the presidency. And I think that's what he is. He's the meeting point at that, he's the zero at the meeting point of opposing forces. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that came out, that idea of casting the characters out of real life people came from the fact that, you know, covering politics is, is what I do uh, as a, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, but also from, I think the power of a movie, a shrink movie, of trying to sort of adapt it in that way, is that you can make it fully realistic for the reader. Because you know, I find a lot of people go through, especially with the character. So why I have so who is John Galt anyway as the main title of the book is one of the chapters is basically saying, addressing this fact that I think a lot of people when they first encounter John Galt they don't know what to make of him, because a book requires you you're, you're reading words on a page and you have to take these characters. And you have to translate them in your own mind into real living, breathing people. And John Galt's so unusual, uh, and he's usual, unusual in a very specific way that I'd like to talk about later, um, that people have a hard time translating him. And so people will say, oh, he's an empty character. He's just a spokesman for this philosophy. There's no character there. There is. It's just that it's very hard for somebody 
on their own to translate is harder than I think for some of the other characters for somebody to translate that. And so that's why I think coming up with these real life examples of saying, you know, Eugene Lawson is the sort of humanity in, in Atlas Shrugged, he's the bloodthirsty humanitarian, right? He is the guy who, who, who is sort of this mushy guy who bleeds with sympathy for the common man, but is always in favor of the most drastic and draconian uh, possible solution to any problem. Uh, he's the one who said oh, is it, it, that, that John Goldspeech is vicious because it'll make people want to be happy, right? So he's the bloodthirsty humanitarian. And I always think of, uh, uh, of Bernie Sanders as that, that you know, he's a guy who talks about how compassionate he is, but the dominant character of all his speeches is this incredible contempt and anger that he has for the world. Uh, so he's your, he's your bloodthirsty humanitarian. And you know, Joe Biden is, uh, now this actually came out of, I did some work once on trying, trying to do a screenplay on out for Atlas Shrugged. Um, and I, when you do that and you go through all this dialogue and you know, Ayn Rand, it's, it's part of the nature of the, the, the novel as a medium that an author writes 10 times as many words as you could possibly use on, in a film on screen. Because you know, film was a visual medium, this is a medium of words. So you had to take the dialogue of every character and filter it down. And in, in doing that with Mr. Thompson, I, I was trying to visualize, you know, how would he talk? How would he act? What are the parts that I really need to keep of his dialogue? And I found I could get him spot on if I just thought of Joe Biden in my mind, that he is the living characterization. And I think it's important for the novel to realize that because, you know, Joe Biden is the guy who always has these brainstorms, these great ideas that seem convincing to him and turn into disaster in practice. And I think that sort of, if you get that, you sort of get how it is that Mr. Thompson lets himself get talked into doing this whole big uh, event where he puts John Galt on live TV. And of course, it, you know, it ends in disaster. But why he would do that, the impulsiveness of that comes from this, you know, the foolishness of, of the character that it, it is helpful to, to grasp uh, when you, it helps using Joe Biden as a model to grasp that. And I think we've seen that with this withdrawal from Afghanistan that he had this idea in his head as how it was going to work. And it was totally unrealistic and ended up in, you know, ended in disaster. But because he's, he's such a, he's the zero at the meeting point of opposing forces, he is not able to project the consequences and think of things, you know, I talked about how politicians, they don't think of things as being really real. They think of the opposing forces pushing in against them and how to appease these different forces. And I think because of that, because he's not able to see things as fully real, he's not able to do things in a, uh, in a in a rational way and project the actual consequences of his actions. Well, um, you had another chapter in the book on management secrets of Atlas Shrugged, uh, which was actually you excerpted that as an article, which had caught my eye. And that was originally what was going to be the uh, subject of our interview, but that was before I delved into the entire book. Um, so I'm going to skip over that, those for now. Let, we're going to put the uh, link to that article in, um, in our comment section so people can go out and check it out. But, uh, but I, as I said to you, I wanted to leave time to, to talk about objectivism and also to, uh, to get to some of our audience questions, because I think we had one of the, uh, the records in um, our registration for this, at least on Zoom. Um, but I, I did want to get to one more uh, chapter in your book, which was, did Dominique Francon win? Um, because it has, I would say, the best exposition that I've read, juxtaposing the uh, benevolent 
and malevolent universe premise. And it helped me a lot personally um, with what has always been my, my biggest uh, sort of sore point, my biggest frustration in my job leading the Atlas Society. And that's when I confront um, the pessimism that so many objectivists uh, who seem to believe that, you know, the ideological battles are lost, that the victory of collectivism is now unavoidable. And so, you know, therefore there's, there's really no point in anything that, that I'm doing and, and also no point in um, supporting such work. So it, it seems like you may have also encountered this attitude uh, as well from, from those who you, you said, um, glory, quote, glory a little too much in the end of days atmosphere in the later chapters of Atlas Shrugged as if that were the goal. And in the real world, they sometimes advocate voting for the greater uh, evil as if the goal of politics were to hasten destruction. So what was helpful to me um, in providing me the, the moral fuel to, to keep fighting um, was how you reframed the, uh, this phenomenon, not as a moral issue. And I think that's why I was getting frustrated, mm. but as a, a metaphysical one, um, you can either muster that fuel or you can't. And so, you know, not to kind of get angry with, with people who, who can't. It's not just like they're being perverse, but it's just they, they don't have it in them. So I'd love it if you'd unpack that a little yeah, bit. I, I, think, I think anybody who's been in the object, objectivist movement for a, lot, a while has sort of encountered that, that strain of pessimism. And sometimes you want to sort of shake people like by the lapels and sort of rouse them out of it. Um, uh, part, and, and so to explain a little bit about the, the, the title, did Dominique Franken win? You know, so I'm somebody who read The Fountainhead, uh, sorry, the, the Atlas Shrugged first. Uh, but other people have read The Fountainhead first. And it was in thinking about how would you look at Atlas Shrugged if you'd read The Fountainhead first, that one of the things that struck me is when you get to the early scenes where Francisco de Anconia is basically saying the world's corrupt and we're, I'm deliberately going out and destroying things so it will, it will crumble faster, you would immediately recognize that, oh, that's, that's Dominique Franken from The Fountainhead. And when uh, Dagny is saying, no, I'm going to keep working and I'm going to, you know, she wants to do her work her way, you'd recognize her as, as, um, as Howard Rourke. And, and, uh, but then of course, things get reversed that, that she's the one who comes around to Francisco's viewpoint and not the other way around, which is what we'd expect if you were a reader of The Fountainhead. So I tried to sort of use that as a springboard to, to analyze this issue, issue of optimism versus pessimism. Um, and I, you know, I think in an objectivism, it comes from a long, now in objectivism specifically as a movement, it comes from this long history of, I used to say that the, the standard objectivist analysis of current events or the state of the world for most of the time that I've been in the movement has been something along the lines of, you know, we're in decline, we once had good ideas and they've been, they've, they've gone, uh, they've been abandoned. Uh, I just hope the final collapse doesn't come in my lifetime. You know, have a good evening. Thanks everybody for coming. <laughs> <laughs> to my talk. And, and that was sort of you know, this relentless pessimism. And it's not just objectivist, though, because there's been a bit of a vogue recently, just, just starting now, a little movement uh, more broadly in the culture to recognize the existence of progress. And, um, you know, so like Stephen Pinker has the book Enlightenment now that he published recently. Mary has, and... Yeah, and he spends like 100 
100, 200 pages at the beginning of the book, spending going through over all these statistics to show comprehensively how life is so much better than it was, you know, 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Basically, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution radically improved human life instead of shaking people out of their anti-progress uh, uh, attitudes. Um, I've I've been a long I've been an advocate of that for a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, for one of the other things I'm working on, Symposium, I'm actually going to start something on, you know, what would our debate look like? What would the arguments we have look like? Political arguments and cultural arguments we look like, we have, what would they look like if we recognized that progress was real and it actually happened? And instead of oh, what a lot of our uh, discussion is now and what a lot of objectivist discussion has been, which is how do we assign blame for the fact that the world is falling apart? Right. Uh, so it's like, well, here's this bad thing that's happening. Here's this bad thing happening here. And it's all happening because you haven't accepted my ideas. And that's sort of been the model for debating this uh, among objectivists and in the culture in general. I think we should have, a, as there's more of a discussion of, given how much enormous progress has happened in the world in the last 200 years, who gets the credit for it? And we should be arguing for our share of the credit. Well, you know, it was because of reason. It was because of uh, uh uh, you know, the advances of science, it was because of individualism and greater degree of freedom. And that's what produced all these tremendous advances we've had. We should be all fighting over our share of the credit. And you can imagine what a different conversation that would be, right? So, you know, we could, I can, I'm actually, I'm having these discussions right now of talking to welfare state people, uh, advocates of the welfare state, and, and they're saying, oh, well, actually, it's the welfare state that helped improve. And then we have to have an argument about, well, no, the welfare state didn't do it. It was actually done by you know free markets and greater production. And that's a much more interesting and I think in some ways more enlightening debate to have because it recenters things on not on the imminent collapse, but on the, the ways in which the, the power of human beings to make progress and to create and to achieve which is really the underlying message of Atlas Shrugged. So that's why I think the people who the people who act as if Dominique Franken won, right? The people who take the more pessimistic interpretation, even, you know, even objectivists and, and fans of the novel who take the more pessimistic message from Atlas Shrugged, they need to look at it really as it's a, it's a message about the power of the human mind and power of human creativity and uh, perseverance to, to triumph over adversity. And to, and to improve things and make things better. And I think that's where we need to have the refocus onto and away from the pessimism. And then, you know, in, in your description, you'd also talked about different characters uh, who maybe shared a lot of the values like Cameron, for example, mm -hmm. in um, The Fountainhead. And it wasn't necessarily a, a, a moral failing, but that he just couldn't, couldn't find it within himself to, to share that optimism. One of the powers of, well, the real power of Ayn Rand's uh, writing and of her philosophy is, especially on morality, is that she realizes that morality is based on a metaphysical base. And it's a metaphysical base in the sense of your view of what the world is and what's possible to human beings in the world. And that completely, and has a profound effect in shaping your view of of morality, uh, basically saying what's possible to human beings. Uh, so uh, fundamentally, the pessimistic outlook is not a moral outlook. It is a metaphysical outlook. It's that someone has let the bitterness or the frustration or the anger or the sense of the existence of obstacles overwhelm for them all the evidence of 
you know, our ability to create and to achieve. And I find it kind of, now I find that kind of, in a way, not this is the shaking people by the lapels aspect of it. I find that a little inexcusable in today's context because we have it so good, because life today is so infinitely better than it was, um, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, there are so many, not just technological improvement, but so many more opportunities that people have in life. I mean, just the fact that I'm I'm broadcasting, you know, to you here. I'm I'm you're in Mal are you in California? I think Malibu, and yes. I and I'm in the middle of nowhere in Central Virginia, and uh, uh, I'm able to do this. And I, I regularly have things. So I was reading uh, some years ago. I was reading a, a book by William Shirer, uh, famous uh, New York, famous uh, reporter from the 1930s and 40s. And he talked about when CBS was this new startup radio show, a radio network, how he organized the first world news roundup. So the idea is they got on the telephone, they got uh, reporters from Rome and Berlin and Paris and London, and they were all broadcasting, you know, all at the same time broadcasting to the listeners back in America. And this had never been done before. It was a totally radical thing. Well, the other day I did a podcast where I had one person in Paris and one person in Mumbai, and we were having a discussion back and forth. And I could just do that, you know, a regular guy, no major budget, no major technology, a regular guy out of a cellar in, in, uh, in, in, in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, I can do that, you know, so casually, the possibilities we have for us, available to us are so vast that I think that, you know, there's a perversity in then saying we're doomed. I actually call it cultural Malthusianism. I've got a something coming out on that uh, in a bit, uh, where, you know, Malthus, Thomas Malthus famously had the idea that well, population is going to expand and it's going to create more problems and more needs and our production can't possibly expand to keep up with it. And he was wrong because, you know, people come up with new ideas and new innovations. He was writing basically before the Industrial Revolution. He didn't realize that people come up with new innovations at such an amazing pace that not only would we keep up with the growth of, growth of population, but we'd you know, our production would vastly outpace the growth of population and people will become much wealthier. Well, I think there's a cultural or ideological Malthusianism behind this. The idea that our problems out in the world are multiplying at such a rate that it's overwhelming our intellectual ability to come up with new ideas and, and uh, good ideas to counter those problems. And it implies that, you know, we humans are just going to sit back passively, that we're not capable of coming up with and accepting and listening to the ideas that we need uh, in order to, to cope with all the, with the problems that we have. Uh, well, but I, whereas I think we will come up with and accept new ideas at a, at a fat, we're capable of doing that at a faster rate than we have new problems. And I think that that is more consonant with the kinds of things that you hear, the characters, the heroes in Atlas Shrug, they say, I'll, you know, I'll figure it out. I don't know now, but I'm confident that I will figure it out. And I, I can't under uh, emphasize how important I thought that that mm -hmm. chapter uh, is. And it's important as well, you know, for, for people who are in the business of promoting ideas um, and, uh, and running think tanks, because I've noticed in, in my five or so years, uh, at least in this think tank position, I was previously at the Cato Institute, uh, that there's almost a, a different, two different kinds of models. And, and one is sort of, I call it the opera model, where you have products um, and services for your donors. You know, you have summer conferences or you have fancy retreats or what have you. And then there is 
uh, the, the other kind of model, which is you're, you may ne never get to go to a, a fancy, you know, um, hobnob with other donors, but you're paying for actual products and services, which are about advancing a mission. And that's, yeah. that's what I'm trying to do at the Atlas Society, although, um, while also preserving an opportunity for people to get together. And given that we have, boy, we have just, this has absolutely flown. I want to get to, um, to talking about uh, objectivism, but maybe a couple of quick hits here from some of our uh, folks that have questions. Uh, George Barker wants to know whether the um, an atheist reads the Bible. Might that also be coming out as a book at some point? I have to get past. The, I have to get past. I have to at least do the whole Old Testament before I can publish that. Um, like I said, it's in the back burner because you know it's not my main focus is not religious studies uh, at this point. <laughs> in my life um so it, it it will it for now subscribers are gonna have to you can find it on the website um and i think it's you know for subscribers don't have to worry about the paywall um but eventually that will be a book but i'm not promising any kind of timeline on that because i've got too many other things that are more sort of central to my to my work that i'm working yes on. and and i've already put in a vote for for getting this onto audible which maybe you uh, might be able to help with uh david hurowitz david you didn't respond to my emails when i was in san francisco i'd still love to see you and donna but um here's a quick question and one i know that you address in your book uh is if ayn rand had a love for the common man why was there no room at uh, for Eddie Willers at Gulf's Gulch. Ah, so, uh, I do address that because I have a whole thing on, on the Galt and Eddie relationship. Um, well, Galt doesn't ask him, but the American fact, remember that Galt knows Eddie better than anybody else in the book, right? He spends hours and hours and hours talking with him in the cafeteria. Uh, he does get an offer. He gets the offer from Dagny. So, and so Ayn Rand dealt with that. Like, well, why, why doesn't Eddie go? Because, you know, uh, it's not that she had a, a ban on assistance going with people, right? Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things I like to point out to tweak the conservatives is that um, when when uh, 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 Danconia Copper collapses, Francisco comes to the Galt to, to the to the uh, to the Galt's Gulch, and he comes with a bunch of his top workers. So I said that you know Galt's Gulch, uh, Gulch's population is expanded by an influx of undocumented Latin American workers. Uh, <laughs> But so it's clear that other people are bringing their assistance. I don't know if Gwen Ives ever makes it to uh, uh, that Reardon secretary ever makes it to Galt's Gulch. I suspect she would be welcome. So she puts in there a line where where Dagny says to Eddie, don't you want to basically don't you want to come to I don't remember the exact words, but aren't you going to come also? And he says, no, I can't. So she puts that in there. So we never get that Galt makes an offer to him. But we, you know, like I said, Galt knows him better than anybody else. And I think she wanted to keep him out there because she wanted to remember she's dramatizing the role of the great producers and creators and thinkers in the world. So she has to have a character who represents the common man and all the virtues of the common man. But she also has to then show what happens to him when all of the great producers, the people who are above, you know, who are operating at a higher level, when all of them disappear. So that's why Eddie has to stay literarily is required that he has to stay in the world. And, you know, that's something people say. People treat Atlas Shrugged sometimes like it's a documentary and, and what happens to the characters, you know, it has to be what you would want to actually happen in the real world. And remember, this is an author, this is a writer who's got a theme that she's trying to get across. And all the characters exist 
to serve that theme. I said, you know, the, the author is the God of her little world. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the people are to there to be used for her inscrutable purposes. So uh, she has her purposes and the purpose of Eddie staying in the world and not going with Dagny is that so we can be there at that last scene that he has with his uncertain fate of showing what happens to the honest common man when the great producers and creators and achievers uh, uh, have exited from the world. So she, he needs to be there to show that and that's why she keeps it. All right, well, in the last eight or nine minutes that, that we have, uh, and we're not on any strict timetable, uh, so we can go over if your schedule allows. Um, I wanted to ask, why do you think it is that objectivism hasn't gained a greater influence over culture and political discourse? You know, you were talking about we should be fighting for the credit, you know, of all of the, the progress that's that's happened. And I think there is a uh, argument to be made that Ayn Rand can lay claim to a good uh, portion of, of that credit and, and the secondary influences that she's had. Um, but is it is it that sort of pessimism, optimism? Is it, you know, politics? What, what's well, your there's, there's a number of things. Um, I think, I think you know, I keep small things and I have a big thing. Uh, one of the small things is that Ayn Rand is somewhat unusual as a writer in that a lot of what she wrote was tied into commentary of the events of her time. So for example, uh, there's an article she did, Extremism or the Art of Smearing. And the actual content of the article is basically about epistemology and how concepts are formed. <laughs> and, she saw, and she introduces the idea of an anti-concept. Uh, but the actual article is commenting on the Republican National Convention of 1964. So part of the problem I think we have right now, because I think Ayn Rand did have a huge influence on an older generation of conservatives, because during the Cold War, she was vitally necessary to them. She was the person when the, when the conflict was individualism versus collectivism you know, the US versus the Soviet Union, she was vitally necessary and important to help explain that. But I think what's happened is after the Cold War, I've been noticing a younger generation of conservatives who have different concerns and different aspects that, they're, uh, that they want to address. And I think she loses a certain amount of re relevance because she's writing in that context of the big political and cultural, the culture wars, if you will, of the 20th century which is not the same thing as the culture war of the 21st century. So that's part of it. And I think one of the things I've been wanting to do is sort of do an updated series of saying, okay, let's take Ayn Rand's article, some of Ayn Rand's articles where she introduces some of these big ideas and let's show, let's, I've got a sort of series in the works of taking them and saying, oh, how do these apply to the current uh, uh, controversies and take her ideas out of that context of the 20th century in which she wrote a lot of those things. You know, she wasn't just an abject philosopher who wrote treatises. She wrote articles on you know, current political events and then inserted these philosophical ideas into those. So can we update some of that? I think that would help. But the big one is that I think there's been too much emphasis. I and mean, it's almost like the problem with objectivist movement is there's been too much emphasis on Ayn Rand. Now I want to explain that, which is that there's been a lot of emphasis to say, how can we take Ayn Rand to promote her ideas? And I think we also have, we'll have to have just as much emphasis on how can we go out and create new, create new things of our own. Um, and uh, she, she wrote a great line in, in Alistair, a great line of dialogue into the mouth of Robert Sadler. It was like one moment of uh, dignity. 
is he says, uh, at last, a crucial new achievement that's not mine. And what we need is more emphasis on how can people who are objectivists who are influenced by Ayn Rand's ideas, how can they create their own achievements, taking her ideas and using them and applying them to create their own achievements that will have an impact on the culture? Because I think that it's, I think it's, a, it's a mistake about the way ideas spread. And it's one thing I noticed persistently, along with the pessimism and objectivism, there's been a persistent idea that everything goes from the top down. So uh, the idea that you know we get objectivists teaching philosophy at Harvard, and then everything will flow just from that, and that we will have won the battle, and everything will flow from that. Whereas I look at how a culture changes, and a lot of times it changes from the bottom up, from people creating art, from people creating uh, history, from people working in journalism, from from people who are inventors and 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 uh, uh, scientists. That all of this stuff comes up from all the different achievements. And you know, my sort of view of how the culture would change is that you would have rational ideas in psychology and rational ideas in science and rational ideas in, in history, et cetera. So that by the time a person reads Atlas Shrugged or reads one of Ayn Rand's you know, works of philosophy, they'd say, well, duh, everybody knows this. Of course, you know, of course, the mind is the source of all wealth. Everybody knows that. That's basic economics 101. Uh, you know, that if if you had these ideas, rational ideas per percolating through all these different fields all at once, uh, rather than just all coming down from, you know, the Harvard, the Harvard uh, philosophy department uh, faculty lounge, that you would have, that's how you have a profound effect on the culture. So I think it's, it's more of the idea of objectivists going out and objectivist intellectuals and, and individual objectivists going out and accomplishing new things that will draw attention to the content of those of their ideas. Uh, that that would prepare the ground for that um, more, much more effectively. So I think it's it's crucial new ideas that are not hers. Is that that's what we need uh, in in that sense of you know people taking her ideas and using them to create important new things. Um, that that's that's interesting. I hadn't quite thought of it that way. I would add to that uh, my take, which is um, you know people need to be aware. They, they need to have some consciousness of, uh, of the author, of her works. And I've noticed um, in my 30 years or so of, of being interested in, in her work, going from any time Ayn Rand's name was brought up to it becoming something very controversial and very negative and very adversarial, to about 20 years ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago, at least in California, when I moved out here, that I was getting a blank stare. And um, I actually found that to be encouraging in one respect that, okay, yes, maybe there's no awareness, but at least we could start reintroducing um, the author and the ideas uh, from our own perspective. And um, in guiding my work, what I take is the, the metaphor uh, that Ayn Rand uses in her address um, to the graduating class of West Point, of an astronaut crash landing on a foreign planet and um, having the choice to look around and um, examine you know, what, what, is, what is the new terrain or not. And to me, examining the new terrain means, okay, if these are the, this is our objective, you know, we want to talk to young people, 
where are they? You know, uh, oh, they're on TikTok. Okay, well, how do we get, uh, you know, our message on TikTok? Oh, they're on Instagram. They're, you know, uh, watching this kind of animated video. They're this huge explosion of, of graphic novels. So that's kind of my, um, my, my take on that. But I, I also think we need a explosion of a, of a lot of different ideas of competition, of experimentation, um, and that I think would, would just kind of help to cross-pollinate and see, see what works and learn from the rest. Well, talking about optimism and pessimism, there's a great story I, I like to tell on this. I uh, picked it up from a guy named Benjamin Zander. Um, and he tells the story, the story is about two shoe salesmen sent down from London to sub-Saharan Africa in the 19th century. And they're sent to assess the market for shoes. And they send back two different telegrams. And one says, situation hopeless, they don't wear shoes. And the other one sends a telegram that says, unlimited opportunity, they don't have shoes yet. Mm. <laughs> and that's sort of, I think, where objectivism is that, you know, it's an unlimited opportunity because people don't have these ideas yet. I think yeah, we have yeah. to have the confidence that these ideas have value, that people need them, that they, 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 people will, will, will seek them out even as an answer to the problems uh, that they're going to be facing. So these ideas have tremendous value. It's a matter of basically letting people know that this is actually possible. You can that this is available. That that, that making them aware of it, and I think you know unlimited opportunity because they don't have Atlas Shrugged yet. I agree, and that's what I always say when I um, am at these student conferences where we exhibit at you know at least a dozen student conferences a year, and the kids come up and I ask, you know, have you ever heard of Ayn Rand? Have you ever read? And they're like the little shame faced. No, I haven't. And I said, well, I wish I was in your shoes because you have your adventure ahead of you. I can't go on that adventure again for the first time. So, um, well, listen, we are past time. Uh, this has been spectacular, Robert. Thank you very much. I want to encourage all of you to, to go out there. You won't regret it and get uh, a copy of his book. Um, Robert, uh, you're on Twitter. Any other places where uh, people should go up and, and sign up for your, your letter? Uh, they should go to Trasinski Letter, uh, TrasinskiLetter.com, T-R-A-C-I-N-S-K-I letter.com. Uh, that's sort of the, the main omnibus. I publish a bunch of different places, but everything will be announced or linked to there. Uh, it's, it's sort of the main uh, it's my personal newsletter. It's the main hub for my work. You'll get everything from, you know, the Bible to uh, to current politics there. And also, also, I'll recommend a few of the um, the, the interviews that he has on Symposium. They're uh, ranging from music to foreign policy uh, to philosophy all over the place, but uh, I would highly recommend those. And um, I want to thank all of you who have joined us. Uh, if you enjoy this kind of interview and also the work that we're doing to introduce young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Atlas Society and perhaps even come to our gala on uh, November 4th in Malibu. Um, and I uh, would love to continue this conversation. Perhaps I'm going to send Robert an invite to Clubhouse and see if I can uh, lure him to spend a little bit of time with us there. Scott, I know you had a question that I couldn't get to. Perhaps we'll get to them in a conversation on Clubhouse. So thank you, Robert. 
And thank pleasure. you all. We'll see you next week. Take care.